verse 1 here in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And before, in our last study before I left for Israel, it became very clear that the Apostle Paul was going through an immense amount of personal pain uh, through somebody in the church. And later when we get to chapters 12 and 13, we're going to find that the Apostle Paul uh, makes a quick visit to Corinth to actually deal with that particular problem. But what we see here in the Apostle Paul's life is something that every one of us as a believer needs to have, and that is a heart of compassion. Ministry at its core will always be and is always about people. The reason that we do ministry in the first place is so that people can come to faith in Christ, so that they can grow in that faith in Christ, so that they then can be used to serve the Lord with their faith in Christ. It is all about the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus is tender-hearted and compassionate. He not only is not willing that any should perish, he is always willing that people should repent, turn from their sin, and be forgiven. And so whether you're talking about ministry in general or life, compassion is one of those things that I think is lacking in our world today. It's one of the great problems that we face as a culture. Uh, we have in some ways become very discompassionate. Uh, we've become argumentative and combative. Uh, we, we have turned our back on reasonable ways to reconcile one with another and instead just simply continued to argue and fight when there is a way to be reconciled that's in view. And so the Apostle Paul uh, begins to deal with this situation here uh, in verse 1. Verse 1 says, But I determined this within myself, that I would not come again to you in sorrow. The Apostle Paul is showing us his heart. Brothers and sisters, if your brothers and sisters who sin against you, if their sin does not cause you sorrow, there is something wrong with you. If their sin just simply makes you mad, there is a deficiency in your personal walk with the Lord. If you cannot reach godly sorrow, if you can't get to that place, to where you look at the sin in someone else's life and you are grieved over the sin in someone else's life to the point of agonizing over it for them, then there is something wrong with you. That may seem harsh to you. That, that may seem like, well, why are you blaming me for their sin, Pastor Jeff? I'm not. I'm saying that the heart of Christ Jesus towards you and towards me is one always and forever forgiveness. Amen? That in fact he has shown us his mercy. Amen? And that mercy is new every morning. Amen? If his mercy is new every morning, which means he does not give you what you deserve, every single morning a new batch of mercy is poured into your account, how merciful do you think that we are supposed to be? We are to emulate the Lord Jesus. And so the Apostle Paul opens this second chapter by saying he did not want to come again and produce additional sorrow in the life of someone that had already been confronted about their sin. There comes a point in time when we have to turn people over 
to the Lord's care in their life, while God deals with their sin, we should not be in the I told you so mold. Too many Christians take delight, seemingly, in the failure of other people. And it produces a heart that is filled with gossip and slander. And it produces damage within the church. We should be grieved when someone else falls into sin. We should take no delight in it. For if I make you sorrowful, then who is he who makes me glad but the one who is made sorrowful by me? The Apostle Paul is saying something that we all need to understand. What hurts the body of Christ hurts us all. The same place that your comfort will one day come, very often are the people that you do need to correct But as you correct them, you need to understand that one day you may be in the hot seat with the correction. You may be the one upon whom the whole church has been turned by a handful of people. And so be very careful about how you treat people who have fallen in sin. Now, before I move an inch further in this passage, let me be very careful to also point out to you, the Apostle Paul is not saying turn a blind eye to sin. He's saying exactly the opposite, in fact. He is not saying that we should put up with sin in the church. He is saying exactly the opposite. But what he is saying is how you deal with someone's sin matters. What you do when someone else falls into sinful behavior matters. How you treat them with a strong hand even. Or how you chastise them. Because the Lord chastises those whom he loves. Amen? The Lord calls out sin. Look, if someone's in sin, we need to be very careful that we don't just simply say, well, you know, God will take care of it. No, God has probably called you to actually speak into that person's life. But how you speak into that person's life and how you follow up that speaking into that person's life matters. It matters to God and it will definitely matter to them. And I wrote you this very thing lest when I came, I should have sorrow over those whom I ought to have joy. Having confidence in you all, that my joy is the joy of you all. In other words, he's he's making the case that when one part of the body is hurt, when one part of the body is sick, when the body has a damaged member, the whole body is affected by it. Now, I can tell you, we have things virtually ongoing ad infinitum here in this church. We're a large church, and so there are a lot of problems. There are people in all manner of crazy, disjointed, bizarre things that you would think would never happen in a church, but they do. And when we don't deal with those things in a godly way, it actually causes more damage. It causes more hurt. It causes more concern. There is a right way and there is a wrong way to deal with people's problems. 
And notice I didn't say there was no way and there was one way. I said there's a right way and there's a wrong way. We, we will have to deal with things in church. We, we've had some, some whoppers, frankly. We've had people in all kinds of sinful behavior that, that have had to be dealt with. But if our goal is to just simply make sure that the problem is taken care of and there's no focus on restoring that person, that person may not be able to be restored. But if there is no focus on restoration, we have missed what the Bible says about forgiveness. God's goal is always restoration. Let me prove that to you. If you had a mirror, you could just hold it up to your face. It's you. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Amen? We were once dead, but he has made us alive. We didn't get alive by ourselves. He poured into our lives so that we could be restored in right relationship to a righteous God. And that restoration came by grace through faith. That was a gift to you. You did not do your own restoring. But you are responsible to help other people be restored in the Lord. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears. Not that you should be grieved. He's he's saying I'm not calling out this problem and, and all of the details of it for sympathy. He's saying look this thing pierced my heart. It afflicted my soul. It caused me tears when I thought of it. I've sat in my office and and wept like a baby with people over the sin that they're engaged in. And fortunately, for the most part, most of those people have recognized the goodness of the Lord and turned from it and turned back. But I can tell you there have been times when people have stormed out of my office and have said things that cannot be repeated from the pulpit. And giving me, giving me signs and wonders. <laughs> but I can tell you this, it broke my heart. It broke my heart. It broke my heart to watch people be that hard-headed because I'm telling you, the Lord has bigger bats than me. The Lord has a way of getting our attention, doesn't he? you walk with the Lord for more than 10 minutes say amen yeah God's able we're supposed to be faithful that you might know notice this the love which I have so abundantly for you this is a painful situation for the apostle Paul it's piercing his heart and the first thing that we see here is true compassion always puts the good of other people first. True compassion always puts the good of other people first. My first concern is not me. My first concern is others. As a believer, not just as a pastor, I'm supposed to be others-centric. Jesus was, and so should I be. And so the Apostle Paul presents this to us. He says, look, I have to consider the feelings of other people. 
Now, very often we deal with situations by divorcing ourselves from the feelings that other people are going through. Can I tell you that in all of my years of ministry, for the most part, people don't just wake up in the morning and decide to be stupid, do something dumb, to be openly rebellious. There, there is normally a set of circumstances that lead up to people's behavior uh, becoming something that, that needs to be dealt with in church. It, it takes time, generally, for people to get over that edge. And if you don't have compassion, you will simply deal with the problem as it is on your doorstep that day. You will look at that person's life and you will examine what has happened in the moment and you will become angry and bitter and terse and you will have zero compassion because all they've done is flung a problem at your door. But when you see that person as someone who desperately needs the love of the Lord... And I don't care what problem you want to talk about. The answer is the same. It is always the love of God that leads men to repentance. It is the kindness of God that draws men back to him. It's not because he can destroy us all. Let me be really clear. If God was just simply angry with people who sinned, then he would just wipe us out and make new people. Amen? Amen. But he doesn't. He loves us so much that he works with us the way we are. And again, notice I did not say he wants you to stay the way you are, but he works with you the way you are. And we should work with others the way they are. Here's the problem. That's work. It's hard. You have to get emotionally invested with people. You you can't do a drive-by on their problems. You can't say, well, sorry about that. Pray for you, brother. No, when somebody's that messed up, you're going to probably have to get in the dirt with them. And I don't mean you get in the sin, but I mean you're going to have to go where they're at. You're going to need to be crying with them and agonizing with them. You will tell them the truth, but that truth will not harm them. It may hurt, but it will not harm. It will not further harm them. The prophet Isaiah, speaking of the children of Israel, said, a bruised reed he shall not break. In other words, something that's already bent does not need to be further broken. It needs to be bandaged. And we need to learn this principle in dealing with other people's stuff, their things. To that end, true compassion corrects, but for restoration... For forgiveness, notice verse 5. If anyone has caused grief, he's not grieved me, but all of us, all of you to some extent. He says, this is a family problem. It isn't just my problem. This is something that's affecting our fellowship. Not to be too severe. This punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, is sufficient for such a man. In other words, you don't have to keep beating the already broken person. You know, I I can tell you, and I'll share a few little inner secrets here. 
there have been people in this church that have wanted the pastoral staff to basically hang signs on people. Kind of like they did back in the feudal medieval times where if you committed a, a, a crime, you carried a placard around. You know, I'm an adulterer. I'm an adulteress. I'm a fornicator. I'm an idolater. I'm a drug addict. I'm a drunk. There are some that would like it if we just had a stock of signs in the office and if we find out you're in sin, you wear one in the church. Here's the problem. How would you like to wear one that says, I'm bitter? I'm hateful. I'm angry. I yell at my kids. I can't control my eating habits. You see what I'm saying? Do you understand why I'm saying it? Because there's not a person in here who, given that particular treatment, wouldn't fail at it miserably because we'd all be wearing a sign. Every one of us. I copped a lousy attitude. I was speeding on the way to church. I told my wife I was going down to get something from the store, but I went and got a 12-pack of beer, went to my friend's house. Do you understand what I'm saying? You see, a heart of compassion in us comes from understanding how much we need forgiveness. Who you are in Christ, who I am in Christ. And when we lose compassion for others, it is always linked back to a lack of understanding of how much we need compassion ourselves. Tender treatment, love in action is a good way to look at the the word compassion. When love acts, how does it act? 1 Corinthians 13 tells us it doesn't keep record of wrongs, amen? It doesn't rejoice in other people's iniquity, amen? You see, true compassion always puts the good of others first. True compassion always causes us to look for forgiveness because I need forgiveness, amen? If you're in here and you want to be destroyed by God, put your hand up. Nobody's raising your hand. You want to be destroyed by God? No, that's why you, that's why you said yes to Jesus' offer of grace, amen? You want to be forgiven, don't you? I hope you do. If you're here tonight and you don't want to be forgiven, we can talk after service. We'll square that away. Of course you want to be forgiven, and so do I. The person who wants to be forgiven needs to be a forgiver. That's the point. Paul's saying, look, discipline the man for his own good, to be sure. No question there. And even godly discipline is an evidence of true compassion. If you really love somebody, you're going you're gonna to chasten them. Proverbs 3 tells us that very clearly there in verses 11 and 12. The chastening of the Lord is, is something that's important in our lives. And we live in a world that doesn't want to chasten anybody. You know, sometimes I see how parenting goes on in the mall, and I'm like, I know what would have happened if I'd have done that when I was that kid's age. There'd be no walking for a very, very long time. And I'm not saying you should beat your kids, but I am also saying your kids should not beat other people and get away with it. You see, there is a place for chastening. And you want that chastening to be as soft and kind as possible. You don't want to ignore it. 
but you also have to do it. And so when we have to chasten, we don't sweep things under the rug. We, we don't have peace at any price. That's not taught in Scripture. You don't just overlook everything. And you certainly don't become a doormat for someone else's violence and sin. Let me be really clear here. No one needs to sit around and be abused by somebody else. That's a place for separation, and that is a place for that person to, to know unequivocally that you will not put up with that. But you want to take the path that is the least punitive and allow the Holy Spirit to work in that person's life. So don't add problems to the already existing problems by being too harsh, is what Paul's saying here. Be as unharsh as you possibly can. It's not a popular subject. James chapter 3 says this. Who is wise and has understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in meekness and in wisdom. But if you have bitter envy, self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. For this wisdom does not descend from above, but it's earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking are, confusion and every evil thing are. If, if there's self-seeking revenge, if there's a need for overt discipline that causes harm, then there's a problem in our own lives. There's a process for this. And while we'll not go through the whole chapter of Matthew chapter 18, if you do not have Matthew chapter 18 highly highlighted, if it is not significantly underlined, if there are not asterisks in the margins, if there are not arrows in your, that part of your Bible, then you need to read it over and over and over again until there's no more room for notes. Because Matthew 18 spells out exactly how we're to deal with problems in the church. And I want to give you just a very brief rundown on it. There's a three-step process that ends in a fourth step. Number one, go to that person between you and them alone. Did you hear what I said? The reason I said it, that's what the Bible says. More importantly, that's what Jesus said. I want you to also take a look at Matthew chapter 18 and verse 2, and it says this whole story is told with the children sitting in the midst, with a child sitting in the midst of the disciples. So Jesus says, Look, I want you to get this principle. So he takes a child, puts it in the middle of the disciples, and says, Unless you become as one of these, you'll not enter the kingdom of heaven. Why is that important in the context of forgiveness? Because children are very easy to forgive because we understand that they do not know everything. Amen? You know, most parents do not send their children off to 50 years in prison because they told a lie about their grades in school. Amen? The, the punishment fits the crime, so to speak. Peter becomes the focus of this later on in the chapter. But if you have a problem, if there's a need for a correction, number one, the first thing, the most important thing, the number one thing, and the only thing you should do at first, and again, did you hear what I said? The only thing you should do is go to that person alone for the purpose of restoring them. 
You do not go to your friends. You don't go to your spouse. You don't go to your neighbor. You don't go to a pastor. You don't go to people on the block. You don't write a blog about it. You go to the person whom has offended you, who has done something that's hurt you, and you go to them alone and try to see if that problem can be restored between you and them alone. Why do you suppose the Bible says that? Because if it ends there, it affects no one else. The second step, very easy to be discerned, and again, read the whole chapter later, underline it, highlight it, do as I said. The second step is that you establish a couple of people to go with you who are neutral to the situation. In other words, you have not poisoned them with your view of what happened. You go so that all things, Scripture says, may be established. They can't be established if you tell them what it is. The only way that they can be established out of the mouth of a couple of witnesses is if you have not prejudiced them with your information. So you going and getting an army is not what is in view here. You go and convincing someone else that they're going to have to go deal with this guy because they're wrong is not what's in view here. What's in view here is you find a couple of people who know nothing about the situation and you go to that person again with those people who know nothing about the situation and establish the facts. And here's why. Have any of you ever misread a situation? Please put your hands up or I'm going to call you all liars. Because you've all misread. I have misread situations. I've misread words. I've misread facial expressions. I have misread particular circumstances and situations in people's lives. I have completely missed things that were totally benign, and I'm going to make a big deal out of them. And so the second step is to get someone who don't know nothing. Amen? And let them hear the story. So that if either one of you has misunderstood the situation, someone who don't know nothing can go, you know what, you're being kind of dumb right now. And whoever that is, and that person is supposed to be a believer, by the way, so they can pull out their Bible and go, well, here's what the Bible says. And there's a reason I'm doing this, because the Apostle Paul is looking at forgiveness in this passage. So I want you to forgive, I want you to have compassion on this person. Compassion necessitates forgiveness. The third step is you take that person to the elders of the church. And the Bibles get pulled out. It's going, man, you're, you're like in sin. We got to deal with this. But we love you. Would you please turn? The whole three-step process is so that person gets restored. But if they won't hear you, step four is you treat them as a heathen and a tax collector and you send them out so that their flesh can get dealt with, so that they can miss what they need to miss. This principle applies to absolutely everything. There are no exemptions. If you are dealing with two believers and one believer has a problem with another believer, there are no exemptions to Matthew 18. I don't care if you've got a doctorate in psychology. I don't care if you've been a pastor for 100 years. 
I don't care if you've known this person for a thousand years. If you have a problem with another believer, your first step is go to that person and try and get it squared away. Your second step is to take two neutral people at least and see if you can make sure you have the facts right so that they can be reconciled. Your third step is then to tell somebody in the church who's the leader so that they can be brought before the leadership of the church and brought underneath the umbrella of the the chastisement of the Lord through his word. And the last thing we want to do is kick somebody out of fellowship. Why? Because to do it any other way is to misrepresent the Lord. To do it any other way is to misrepresent the Lord about anything. Because we've all been wronged, amen? The church is filled with people who've been wronged. The church is filled with people who have ought with other people. And if every single time someone in the church who has a problem with somebody else in the church goes to other people, what do you think it will do to the church? What did the Apostle Paul focus on? He said this whole thing will tear apart the church. So your problems with somebody personally become the church's problems. And they're not the church's problems but they become the church's problems because they weren't dealt with in love between two people. Lock this in, please, and use it 100% of the time you run into problems with a brother in the Lord, a sister in the Lord. Because forgiveness is the true stuff of godliness. You're the example of that. If you do not have the forgiveness of God, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Amen? You're not going to heaven without being forgiven. The fact of the matter is, you are a sinner, you were a sinner, and you're always going to be a sinner until you get fully translated to heaven and glorified. So what do you need from the time that you were born to the time you exit the planet? Forgiveness. Amen? That's the stuff of true godliness. Paul has that in view here. The most striking words ever uttered from the cross for me personally is, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Because Jesus could have said a lot of other things, amen? See what that guy did? See what that guy did? Know what that person did? You know what they said about me? Look at that guy over there wagging his head. It's the same thing that Stephen said when he was being stoned, wasn't it? Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Forgiveness is the stuff of true godliness. We need to lay hold of this because it truly can set right so many things. And as Jesus plopped that child in the midst, You know, he he could have used Joseph as an example that we're studying his life right now in our study on Sunday nights. Joseph had every reason to not forgive his brothers, didn't he? And I hear it all the time from Christians. I'm not going to forgive them. I refuse to forgive them. You might want to read the end of Matthew chapter 18. For if you do not forgive your brother who sins against you, neither will your heavenly father forgive you but rather he will turn you over to the torturers 
so that you will repent. You see, we all have our reasons. Paul had his reasons in this passage to be absolutely enraged at the things that had been done to him. But the true measure of Paul's character was the amount of forgiveness that he was willing to pour out for people that had hurt him. When you ponder that forgiveness, we are never more like the Lord than when we forgive. You cannot be any closer to the Lord Jesus than when you are forgiving wrongs done to you. That is the near perfect human example of being like the Lord. And how did the Lord forgive us? While we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. Amen? While we're shaking our fist at God, saying, I don't want you. We're in the crowd. I don't want this man to rule over me. Jesus is saying, this blood's for you, Jeff. This beating I'm taking is for you, Jeff. This crown of thorns is yours, but I'm going to wear it. This robe of mocking should have been placed on you, Jeff, but I'm going to wear that. Forgiveness is a mandatory thing in the life of a, of a believer. It's, it's not an elective. And in Luke's gospel it says, even if a brother sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, Jesus said, forgive him. I've had people go, well, it can't possibly mean for me to do that. Oh, yes, he could. Because that's what he does for us. I was talking to a group of pastors. We were kind of sitting around in a circle one time at a pastor's conference, just talking about the things that we struggle with most. And actually, about two or three of the pastors in that group said, the thing I struggle with most is forgiveness. A pastor said that. I've got these people in my church and they're just constantly stirring up trouble. And he just went on and gave you know, quite a bit of details. I said, have you actually talked to him about it? He said, oh no, if I talk to him about it, they'll go about slandering me. I said, bro, what's wrong with you? I said, could it be the reason that you're actually facing that problem is you won't face the fact that you are not a forgiver? And he got, oh, seriously tweaked. He said, are you judging me? I said, I'm not judging you. You just confessed to sin, brother. He said, well, what am I supposed to do? Forgive him? I said, yep. He said, well, that's impossible. I said, no, it's not. I said, it's improbable. It's improbable because it's so unnatural for us as people. It's even unlikely because it's so unnatural for us as human beings. But it is so like Jesus. Because that's what he's done for us. It's what he continues to do for me, for you. And that's what's in view in this passage. As the Apostle Paul pours out his heart, he's saying, look, I want you to treat this person that sinned against me well. I don't want you to keep count. I want you to enact Romans, Romans chapter 8 
There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't condemn him. Confront him if necessary, but you love on him and see if you can get him restored because we're better together than we are apart. This is a passion of my own heart because I think much of what we face in our world and in the church today is the direct result of people failing to forgive. They simply say, I I won't do it. I'm going to hang on to it. I see it in marriage. I see it in the church itself. Paul understood the human tendency to commit sin. We have to keep our eyes on our human tendency to commit sin. Amen? When you lose sight of the fact that you are still a sinner saved by grace... then you hold other people to harsh standards that you yourself would fail at. Peter in this chapter, God bless Peter. And I mean that sincerely. Because he speaks like me. It's like, Lord, so if I forgive him seven times, I'm awesome, right? But now, let me get down to the, the, the real nuts and bolts of this. After the seventh time, I can kill him, can't I? Because, I mean, it's over for him, right? What does Jesus say? He says, seven times seven times ten. He, he uses actually a word, myrios. It, it means an indefinite number. He says, no, Peter, I say to you, keep forgiving him until he doesn't sin anymore. Not till you get tired of it, but until he can't sin anymore. He gets so tired of being forgiven, so in need of repentance, that he actually changes his behavior. Peter, it's on you. You see, when we hear stuff like that, we're going, I'm not doing that. No way. I'll go with the legal number of times I need to forgive. And we all have stuff like this in our lives where it's just like, man, two more times and they're dead. Three more times, it's over. I've had both husbands and wives sit in my office. If you do this again, I will never forgive you. Christians. And I have to look at them and say, what are you actually saying? Are you saying that you want to limit the forgiveness of God in your own life? Because the Bible says if you do that, that's exactly what you're doing. Read it for yourself. Finish the chapter. Maybe some of you need to read it tonight. Jesus didn't mean 490 times. Jesus was saying to him, look, if he sends, you forgive. If he sends again, you forgive. And you keep forgiving until you run out of breath. He didn't say sit down, let them beat you. He didn't say you have to put all your stuff on the table so somebody can steal it. He didn't say you need to let them scream and yell at you. He said from your heart to them, there is nothing you cannot forgive. Why? Because unforgiveness hurts the person who carries it way more than it does the person they hold it against. The Lord's looking out for you, looking out for me knows the danger of unforgiveness. 
you see true compassion is quick to forgive and quick to restore. Verse seven. So that on the contrary, rather you ought to forgive and comfort him, lest perhaps such a one be swallowed up with too much sorrow. Now maybe some of you have gone through this. I myself personally have. I have been so overwhelmed with my own culpability, the words that I've spoken, that it just seems like, Lord, I I don't even know where to go from here. So damaged in my own psyche, thinking about my own responsibilities in situations, that if someone were to take in that moment uh, of already crushing pain of guilt and add one more rock to the wall that's already fell, fell on my life, that it would kill me. Now, that may sound strange coming from a pastor. I'm not saying it happened last week. But I am saying that you need to be really careful about piling rocks on somebody that's already had a wall cave in on them. We're to be rock lifters. We are not to be rock throwers. And therefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Remember who this is. This is clearly sin in the church. This is a person who has personally affected the Apostle Paul, caused him great harm, tried to destroy his reputation and his character. And the Apostle Paul says, of this man I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. For to this end I also wrote that I might put you to the test whether you are obedient to all things, you see, you can tell somebody who's a real believer by what they do with the love of God that's been placed in their heart. And now whom you forgive anything, I also forgive. He says, look, because Christ has forgiven me and we forgive as Christ forgives, when you forgive, it's forgiven in my life too. There's something that the Lord's shown me as I've gotten older and wiser in ministry. I don't have to understand everything. I don't have to have all the answers. I don't have to have all the details. I don't need to know who dotted what I and crossed what T. I can be simply okay that someone else says they're good. I don't need to know, what well, did they do this? Did they do that? Did they make this right? Did they make that right? That is between them and God. If you say it's okay between you and somebody else, I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you. I don't need to have a rundown on all the bits and pieces and parts. I can simply know that God is able if we will turn to him. And now whom you forgive anything, I also will forgive. For if indeed I have forgiven anything, I have forgiven that one for your sakes in the presence of Christ. And here's why lest Satan should take advantage of us for we are not ignorant of his devices. There's three reasons here. Forgive him for his own sake. Forgive her for her own sake lest he would be swallowed up with much sorrow. Don't 
break the already bruised reed. A second thing. You want to confirm your love to that person for the sake of the Lord and for his kingdom. God is love, amen? You've been with us in our study in 1 John. God is love, amen? He is never not love, amen? So how should his people be? Always loving. Even in tough things, tough situations, hard things. We should be loving. It is uncharacteristic of the Lord himself and for his kingdom that his church would become unloving. So whatever we're doing, if we're saying it's of him, then there should be a measure of love that's tangible with it. And a third thing, we want to forgive that offender for the sake of the church. Because what affects you affects me. It affects you and me, it affects us. It if it affects a few of us, it will affect all of us. Whatever you go through, I go through. What we go through, the whole church goes through. That's why it's called the body of Christ, amen? Why do you think when you get a small piece of cancer somewhere in an obscure place of your body, the doctors get very concerned and dial up an oncologist? Why do you think that is? Because cancer in your toe can become cancer in your brain. Cancer inside the fluid inside of your knee can become cancer that spreads to your lymph nodes. Cancer is cancer. And unforgiveness, lack of compassion, being discompassionate is cancer. It affects the whole body of Christ. So let's be compassionate. Confront sin, absolutely. Call sin, sin, absolutely. Be holy and righteous, of course. Love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength every day. But if we get into that situation to where someone has done something that is an offense to the Lord, remember all sin is a sin against God, amen? We're not righteous. I mean, in one sense, when we sin and it affects another person who's also a sinner, it's not exactly a sin against a sinner because sinners sin. All sins is sin against God. That's what David said, against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned. So when someone has a problem, we should see them the way Jesus sees them. And we should be quick to forgive and quick to restore and filled with deep compassion for everyone. In Jesus' name. Amen? Would you stand and we'll pray together. The pastors are going to come forward and they'll be available after we close. And maybe you've got an area in your life where you need somebody to pray with you just for more compassion, more tenderness, gentleness, meekness, self-control, more fruit of the Spirit to, to well up in you so that you can be compassionate with difficult people probably not a person in here that doesn't need that so we'll pray for that for all of us but when you see things going awry see them the way Jesus sees them Father we thank you for your compassion towards us 
Lord, I thank you for your compassion for me. Lord, your mercy on me, your kindness on me, your gentleness on me, your control of your omniscience and omnipotence towards me. Lord, we thank you for your mercies that are new every morning, your compassions, they fail not. Lord, there will never be a day when we wake up to a discompassionate God ruling over us. And so, Lord, in that understanding, would you make us compassionate as you are, make us loving as you are, and forgiving as you are. Lord, help us to endure all things, hope all things, and believe all things, and let not that love that's in us ever fail, Lord. Thank you for your love for us. Help us to love others the way you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.